All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to John 17 today. And uh, it, see, there are, you know, Clay already asked me, are we, are we done with prayer? No, this is just a, a one-week excursus here. There are, there are moments in, in the lives of, of, of pastors where we realize it's our, like something has come up, it's our job to sort of steer the ship to, to, to know how to handle things, a particular, you know, situation. And this is, you know, it's important to remember pastors are, are not preachers in, in this. That they, pastors do preach, but the primary job of the pastor, of pastors, is to, is to shepherd, is to lead. And so in, in thinking about and, and really already having the sermon for this Sunday done and, and, and thinking about, you know, what, what should we do? Our, our church has gone through an issue of intra-church conflict. And so with us having, as a church, having to go through something that we have not gone through. I mean, in my, feels like I've been here for 20 years. Uh, in my 13 years, right, we've only had to do something like this, only had issues come to, to, to this point just a few times. Uh, and, and having to be on the front lines of how do you handle you know, conflict. How do you handle it when a brother or sister uh, is is uh, is going through something? Is unrepentant? All the ramifications of that that uh, that happened to to them, to the church around, and the, the the church's job to to pursue that in in hopes of of repentance. And people began to ask, well, "What do I do? How do I how do I handle this? You know, what do I do with this situation? If there is someone who's who's angry or something's going on, you know, how do how do I handle that?" In particular, uh, and there, there are a couple things we can do in a situation like that. Really, three things we could do. One is we could ignore it and just pretend till it is no longer an issue and it's gone and no one remembers it anymore. Two, it could, we could be consumed by it, where that's all we think about all day long. Or three, we could learn from it and apply scripture to it. And, and, and here's, because here's the reality about what you see in conflict within church is that even within church, I mean, we've had to, we've had to deal uh, with, with that issue, with church discipline and that, but that's only one area of conflict in our lives. I mean, at the same time, during the same amount of time, some of you have come to me, we've had to deal with conflicts in your marriage. We've had to deal with conflicts between, uh, in families. What do I do with my kids? How do I, what do I do if my kid does this or acts this way? What do I, what do, I do uh, in this situation? Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's with, among friends. It's with your work. And so I've had to work with each of you or some of you at various times in the last several months. Just how do I handle this? And I thought, well, this is a great time. Instead of having a bunch of little snippets where everyone's getting a little bit of something, why don't we just all get together and say, hey, so what does the Bible say about how to handle conflict? What does the Bible say about when things aren't right? You know, what do you do when, when something's amiss? How do you handle that? Whether it's in your home, uh, in your marriage, in, in our church, uh, even we're going to see in ourselves. What do we do when we're conflicted, when something is off? How do, we, how do we handle that? When the relationship seems strained? And so to start, we're going to see uh, how to kill conflict. Killing conflict. And how to do so biblically. It, uh, John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And you either kill conflict or conflict will kill everyone. Uh, the, if the Bible says that sin will kill you, conflict kills all of us, right? Conflict is like a bomb. Uh, and so we've got to kill that sin. We've got to kill conflict where it begins. And so let's start with, with Jesus' prayer in John 17. So John 17 uh, beginning in verse 20, we're going to look here. This is Jesus' prayer for unity. Okay, so Jesus, he's praying for the unity of the church, just in general, just praying in general for the unity of the church. And we'll see how, how all of, of these encouragements and, and calls for unity that, that we're going to look at in these verses, uh, whether it's unity in the marriage or family or friends, that those principles for handling conflict are the same in every area. So these, what we're going to look at and how to handle conflict here, this is not just about how to handle conflict in the church. This is not just how to handle conflict. In, this is about how to handle when any relationship seems off, what do I do? What do we do? 
with that because the world will tell you to do one of two things. The world will tell you either to get mad that the relationship's off and blame the other person, or the world will tell you to just sort of withdraw, right, and do nothing about it until it goes away or you both forget that you're mad at each other. Uh, and then, you know, maybe, maybe the coldness has worn off. So we're going to see uh, that, that these texts on unity are going to be useful in every situation. Let's stand in the honor of reading the word of God. Let's see Jesus' prayer in John 17, down through verse, uh, we'll start in verse 20, go down through verse 23. Uh, and we're going to hit this like a machine gun today uh, of, of verses, because uh, we're going to rip the band-aid off on this. Uh, beginning of verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Let's pray. Father, we pray today for your guidance, Father, through your word, that you would help us to know how to handle uh, any conflict that rises up in our lives, whether it is between brothers and sisters uh, or between husbands and wives or in a home, uh, that, Father, you would teach us how you tell us to deal uh, when unity is strained. Uh, So, Father, give us that wisdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Jesus has, has prayed for unity here. It's funny, he, he's already prayed for unity specifically for his disciples. If you're still in John 17, he prayed for the disciples' unity back in verse 11. He prayed that the disciples would be united, which if you've read the New Testament, you know, that's a pretty heady prayer there for him to make, for the disciples to be uh, united. But now he's focused not just on his disciples, but on all of those who are going to believe through their proclamation. And, and, and think about how that prayer has grown. Think about how he prayed for, for, for the disciples who they shared the gospel with and how it has grown and grown uh, and grown. And what does he pray? What does he pray for, these, for this coming sort of church age, this church that's about to erupt on the world really after Pentecost and just sort of flood out from the preaching of the disciples? What does he pray of all things, of all things for him to pray for the church? What does he pray for them to have in John 17? Remember, he's arrested right after this prayer is over. What is his request for the church? That they may be one. In fact, it it is their being one, their unity that Jesus says is gonna show the world that God truly sent Christ. So the apostles are gonna proclaim it and the unity of the church is gonna be the proof of it. In fact, being one, he says, is part of the glory of the church. That's something I think we miss a lot, that part of the glory of the church is the unity that Christ grows in. That's why it's so sad that you hear about churches in disunity and that it's become almost a trope or a joke on church splits and stuff like that. And you want to know, why is the church in America not glorious? They have thrown off that glory, the glory that comes in unity. And so because the church is often filled with us being self-seeking and there's always another self-seeking place that encourages us in our seeking, uh, there's always somewhere else to go. Uh, And so the church fractures and fractures and that glory of the church is lost that Jesus prayed for. But the only reason for Jesus to pray for their unity The only reason for him to lift that up and ask God to do that, the only reason for him to ask for this is if unity and conflict are going to be issues that the church is going to go through. Jesus is not having to ask for something that is not a struggle, going to be a struggle for the church. He's not going to have to ask for something that is not going to be a problem. So the first thing we're going to see is that conflict is a reality. So the reality of of conflict. Conflict is a part of life and it's even an expected part of the Christian life. That's right. The Bible expects us to have conflict. That's why it gives us guidance on how to handle conflict. If the church was not going to be in conflict, there'd be no reason for the Bible to guide us in how to handle it. 
There's a reason you don't see much in Scripture teaching us about how to fly, right? Um, because we're not going to need to have to worry about that. But there is quite a bit in how to handle conflict. Jesus, Jesus doesn't pray these prayers, doesn't pray for this one thing of all things if prayer isn't going to be, or if conflict isn't going to be a big issue in the church. And what's funny, if you look at scripture, you can see this through the history of scripture, right? It's not like you're reading scripture and you hear about conflict and you go, well, I had never expected there to be a problem. I mean, you, Cain and Abel, right? I mean, it starts out really quick, right? You've got Cain and Abel. You've got, I mean, Sarah and, and Hagar, Right? You go, you, Moses, Moses and his siblings, Moses and the people. Moses would have loved this. Uh, Moses and just about anybody in his life. Moses was probably like, do I just rub people the wrong way? Uh, you've got Saul and David. You've got David and his kids. You've got Solomon and his wife and his other wife and his other wife. All of them. You've got Israel. You've got Israel and Judah. I mean, you even get into the New Testament, right? You've got Jesus in conflict with whom? The Jewish leaders. You have conflict within the disciples, conflict between them, right? Where they're like, hey, let, let me, hey, Jesus, let us sit at your right hand and your left. Actually, I get their mom to ask, which seems totally lame. But, you know, let us sit on your right hand and your left. And then the other disciples are like, wait, what? We want to sit there too. That's why Jesus prayed for them in verse 11, that they'd be one. You see Paul, Paul on his missionary journeys, right? We just looked at this in our neighborhood Bible study, Paul and John Mark. Paul and the author of the gospel of Mark got into it. Paul and Barnabas, the son of encouragement. I mean, if you can split with the son of encouragement, something's got to be going on. What do you do with those situations? In fact, as you're reading, as you're reading your New Testament, almost every letter in the New Testament, almost every church letter talks about some form of conflict in that church. Every New Testament letter to the church. Some conflict that's going on. So it's conflict is a reality for the people of God. Hopefully it won't be a constant reality, but it shouldn't be a shocking thing when it occurs. As we'll see today, the Bible has a lot to say about how to handle conflict, a lot. And let me tell you right here, Les, you can ask Leslie, as I wrestled with this, this was either going to be one day or eight, right? Uh, it was one of those things because there is so much scripture and I've seen how people need to know how to handle conflict in their marriages, right? And they do it wrong and we got to walk through so many texts. They don't know how to handle conflict between their friends. We don't know how to handle conflict in the church and there's so much text that you go, can I skip any of it? So I am going to say, we're going to do a one day thing. This is like a shotgun blast today. Uh, but if you're, if you are interested, we could go through a more extensive study. We could, we could talk about how important it is for marriage. We talk about it for families. Uh, I'd be what we could do a Saturday study, a Tuesday night. I say Tuesday night because that's literally the only night I have open. Uh, we could do a Saturday study, a, a Tuesday night. If you're, if you're interested in this and want to know more about how to hand, how the Bible says to handle conflict, just text me. Just let me know. If enough people are interested, we'll just start meeting at the church and walking through these things. There's, a, there's some really good books out there, but also there's a ton of Bible verses that we'll, we'll hit. So if enough people are interested, I can't take a break from prayer that we just started to do eight weeks on this. Uh, but if enough people are interested, we can make, we can make time to study that. I think it would be very useful uh, because this is just going to be, a, this is just gonna be a, like a refresher or like an inoculation on the, on the issue. All right, so... If marriage, if conflict is going to be a reality, uh, the one thing we want to do, what that teaches us is not to be shocked when conflict happens. Don't feel that this is some sign that something must be wrong, right? So you're married, things are going great. All of a sudden there's a conflict. What does the world say? The world's going to tell you, look, that means you're not supposed to be together, right? Because there's conflict. You don't get through it. You just get over it and get with someone else. The, the world's going to say, oh, there's conflict. If there's a conflict in your church, what do you do? You just go somewhere else. That's what the world's going to tell you to do. The Bible's going to tell you that's not what you do. I mean, I've, no, I've known people who've left churches because of conflict, not even conflict they were involved in, just conflict in the church. I thought, well, something must be wrong. There's conflict in the church. And I think if that's the truth, you, you've got to realize, and we've got to realize, you would have left almost every New Testament church 
If that were that, you could have been the one taking the letters to every church. You'd be like, I just left Ephesus. It's a mess there. Uh, Paul could have sent you from church to church. I mean, if you were looking for something that, that didn't have conflict, I mean, you could, if, if conflict scares you away, or if you think conflict is a sign of a problem, you could not have been a disciple of Jesus Christ. How many, how many times would you have been sitting there with the disciples and gone, have you noticed? Like, I mean, James and John and Peter would have driven you away a long time ago. Right, a long time ago, you'd have been like, "I can't handle this." I mean, he's got hard sayings, but they're just hard to live with. Uh, you know, I just, I just something's weird here. We've got to understand that conflict is a reality for the church, or not only will we run from it. More importantly, when conflict comes, we won't run to the Bible to find out how to deal with it. Because if we think conflict is an anomaly or something the church isn't supposed to go through, then we're going to assume that the Bible is not going to tell us how to handle it. But if we know that conflict is something the Bible tells us to expect in our lives, in our churches, in ourselves, then the first place we're going to run is not away from the conflict, but to the word of God. And that's what I want us to see today. That's why I said we're going to look at how to deal with these things biblically. Because there's a lot out there telling you how to deal with these things. A lot of pop psychology in what to do in your marriages or your homes or, or your churches or with your friends when there's conflict. We want to know what does the Bible tell us about how to handle uh, these things. And, uh, and I'll let you know the Bible, the Bible can, do, can use conflict to do great things. One author, and I loved what he, I wanted to just use it. It was so good. So I'll, I'll reference him. said, conflict can help us. It can help us to discover our character weaknesses. It can correct mistaken theological ideas. It can sharpen our beliefs. It can refine our plans. It can grow us in wisdom and life experience. It can teach us to learn to trust God during difficult times. It can deepen our prayer life. All of those things can happen from conflict. Conflict can be the seedbed for some really good things if we handle it biblically. In fact, Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. What a blessing when brothers dwell together in unity. But, so conflict is to be expected, but that doesn't mean conflict isn't a big deal. That's the other problem that you run into churches. Sometimes uh, it, it, you, can, you can have conflict in your home and you think, okay, we've got conflict. Uh, I didn't expect this. The other thing is to go, well, it's just conflict. Everybody does it. There's always going to be conflict, which really minimizes the danger of conflict. And that's the next thing we're going to see is that although conflict might be something that is going to happen, that doesn't mean that conflict isn't dangerous. So, for example, the Bible tells us that conflict destroys. Galatians chapter 5, verse 15 says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. The Bible tells us that conflict, conflict is so dangerous that the person you think is your closest friend, that if you don't handle conflict right, conflict can separate you from your closest of friends. For example, Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. That conflict is dangerous because once it gets started, it's hard to stop. So you've got this thing that comes in, it destroys. It destroys even your closest of friendships. If, if that person or you doesn't handle conflict right, it will separate close friends and once it goes, you can't stop it. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. So we can expect conflict. You can expect to get into it with your wife. You can expect to get into it with your husband. You can expect that there will be conflict between you and your children as you're trying to raise them up in the gospel. You can expect conflict. We can expect conflict to happen here. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean we shouldn't treat conflict as, as, as important or something to, to, as an issue to deal with, as if it's nothing to worry about. Conflict is dangerous. So, 
What do we do? If conflict is common, if conflict is dangerous, what do we do about it? Well, let's talk about some guidance that the Bible does give in terms of, of conflict. This is, this is important because we want to not just know that conflict is going to come. We don't want to just know it's dangerous. We want to handle it right. We want to be prepared, prepared not just for it. We're going, oh, yep, that's conflict. I see it. We want to know how to deal with it. Right? You know, we want to know how to, how to squash it, how to, how to kill it biblically. The first step to killing conflict biblically is to avoid conflict. <laughs> the, first, the first thing to, to, to dealing with conflict is try to avoid it. Avoid conflict. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 3 says, It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. You don't want to be someone who's like strife is common and it follows you on your coattails, right? You don't want to be the reason that strife is common and quarreling is common is because you carry it with you in a handbag. Uh, you're like, well, you know, it's going to happen all the time. And you're, you're someone who's just sort of sowing conflict. It is, it is a prudent man that wants nothing to do with strife or conflict. It doesn't get into it. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Why? Because you know that they breed quarrels. So the answer, the best answer to conflict is to not get into it. Like we saw, once conflict gets started, like, like, like it said in, in, in Proverbs chapter 18, once conflict gets started, it's hard to get out of. So the best thing to do is to be someone who is already wet wood, when it comes to conflict, someone who's not like kindling over every, as, as Paul told Timothy, foolish and ignorant controversy. Because those sorts of things breed quarreling and you should want nothing to do with quarreling because every fool will be quarreling, which means every fool will be in foolish and ignorant controversies. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about there. He's obviously not talking about standing for the truth, right? Or defending the gospel, but if you're someone who's always quarreling, you've got to read that passage and say, am I always quarreling? Not because I'm always defending scripture, but because I'm foolish in my conduct. Might that be the reason that I'm always fighting? It, it, it is the Bible that says it is honorable to keep aloof from strife, that it is a fool who is always quarreling. So if I'm always quarreling, I have to at least ask. Is it because I'm engaging in foolish and ignorant controversies and because I like quarreling instead of avoiding it? So if the, the key is to avoid conflict, how do we keep out of conflict? One key to keeping out of conflict is to check your standard. What is your standard for getting into this fight, right? What is the standard that you're, and your standard had better be the Bible. See, James, James tells us that conflict begins not through our great desire to defend God's word. James says that's not why you guys are fighting. James says that conflict begins out of selfish desires, that when we're holding uh, others or ourselves to, to standards, to, to our standards instead of God's. So James chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, now normally when, when we think about, well, where did the, the conflict start? We normally think about the other person. The conflict started when she said this, or the conflict started when they did that. But here James tells you, that if we're fighting and quarreling, the first place you need to look, James says, is at your own heart. The first place we need to be looking, if there's a fight going on, and let's say I'm, I'm in conflict with Leslie, and there's an issue, my first thought better not be, all right, what did she do wrong and how can I fix it? My first thought better be, if we're fighting, James tells me I need to start out by looking at my own heart. And making sure that the reason I'm not fighting with Leslie is I've set up a standard for Leslie that the Bible doesn't set up and then I've held her to it. 
Or, or if, it's a, if it's an issue in the home with my kids, I've, I've held up this standard for my kids. I want them to be this. The Bible doesn't do that. Or if it's in the church, I want another church member to act or live like this. Not because the Bible says they should, but because I think they should. If we have a problem with someone, if someone's having a problem, the root of the conflict is probably our own heart. So if self is the cause of the conflict, the way to squash the self is to hold firm to the Bible as the only standard for you or for anyone else. Remember, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. Why did he rebuke the Pharisees? Because the Pharisees were burdening people with rules that weren't from the Bible. Standards that they came up with. And and that's why Paul has to tell Timothy, the standard that you need to have is and will ever only be the word of God. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, what does he say? He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Work Every good work that someone needs to be doing will have scripture to back up why they need to be doing it. Everything you need to do in terms of teaching someone, you can find it in the scripture. Everything you need to do in terms of reproving someone, there'll be a scripture to back it up. In terms of uh, correcting someone, scripture. Training them in righteousness, scripture. You look at those two things, that's two things on how to think, two things on how to live. Anything anyone needs to think and, and believe to be true, there will be scripture to it. Anything that is someone, how someone needs to live or not live, there will be scripture to it. Make sure that your standard as you're going into the, in your life, if you want to avoid conflict, make sure your standard is always the word of God. And then you walk. So you take your standard and you get into action. You walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. Walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. This is Galatians 5. That's, remember that passage that said you bite and devour one another. I mean, we could, we could spend, I mean, if you want just one text to look at for conflict and dealing with conflict and how to not deal with it, and how to avoid it, Galatians 5 really starting in verse 13, uh, going all the way down to verse 26, a great passage, a great passage. This was almost just Galatians 5 today. Because what does it tell us to do? We are to walk by the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So he's saying we bite and devour one another because we don't love each other. That we're more worried about our own flesh and its passions. Instead, we need to walk not by our passions, but walk by the spirit. It's those passions that have actually led to conflict. And that's when Paul compares living by... So this is the context for when Paul starts talking about living by the flesh versus walking in the spirit. He says, if we're living in the flesh, we're going to see things like... This is Galatians 5, 19 through 21. He says, we're going to see things like sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, all those things we'd expect when we think someone's walking by the flesh, right? We're like, oh, that's living by the flesh. But what else will we see? Something that very much deals with what he talked about in verse 15, where we're biting and devouring one another. You'll also see what? Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions. In fact, he has more words on quarreling type things than he does the things we normally consider the sins of the flesh. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. He says, if these things are in your life, then you're being led by your passions. And of course, passions lead to sexual morality and stuff like that. But passions also lead to strife. They also lead to division. They also lead to us devouring one another. So what does it look like if we're walking by the Spirit? That's what he says in verses 22 through 23. That's, why, that's, that's what the fruit of the Spirit is about. Instead, you're supposed to walk by the Spirit. Well, what would that look like? Well, if you're walking by the flesh, you'll see these things in your life, strife, enmity, divisions, rivalries, uh, those things. If you're walking by the Spirit instead, you'll see what? The fruit 
of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Because against those things, there is, there is no law. If, if we're walking by the Spirit, these are the qualities. And then notice the very next verses after that. What happens if we're walking by the Spirit? Well, walking by the Spirit wets the wood of conflict so that we don't get into it. We don't bite into The problem with biting and devouring one another is if, if you've already bitten someone, it's kind of hard to fix that sometimes. I don't know if anyone's ever bitten you that's not a child. Uh, but if like a grown-up bit you, you, it'd be a long time before you're like, yeah, we're cool again. It's cool. He bit me on the face, uh, but we, we reconciled. Uh, so what, what, does, what does it do if we're walking by the spirit instead of by the flesh? We won't get into the biting and devouring to begin with. Look, that's what he says in verses 25 and 26. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. And then look at, look at what he talks about. It's going to happen if that happens. The exact opposite of the biting and devouring one another. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So, I mean, if we want to, if we want to, if, if we want to, to be avoiding conflict, if we want to stay out of conflict, we need to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Because if we're walking by the Spirit, we're going to be led by the Spirit. And that means we're not going to be conceited. We're not going to provoke one another. We're not going to be envying one another. Another way to avoid conflict is to always think the best of others. Start out thinking the best of them. Remember, Paul said one of the problems here in in Galatians 5 is they don't love one another. And he says the law can be summed up in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, he said that's the problem. Well, what does Paul describe in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? What does love do? And in the summation of what love does in verse 7, he says, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love's hope, love hopes all things, endures all things. Listen, just, just in terms of what I've seen in conflict, conflicts normally start or they continue or they get fanned into this horrible flame when we start thinking we know why the other person is doing what they're doing. And normally... When we start thinking that, we don't think they're doing it for the best reason. We always think of the worst. When we question every look that our wife gives us, right? When we wonder about every action of a brother or a sister, we start to question everything. And we start to think not the best, but the worst in them. Love is not believing all things there. Love is not, love is not enduring, it's not certainly not hoping all things, it's believing the worst. If you start believing the worst in someone, you'll start to see that person as the worst. And then you'll see conflict with them almost as an inevitability. If you start to think that every look your wife is giving you is because she's not happy. If you start to read every text, the worst possible way to read the text you're going, to start, you're going to already be boiled up to conflict before you ever even see each other again. The truth is that's not loving. And Paul warned the Galatians in 5, this, that not loving each other is what leads to you biting and devouring one another. And you, you know you're not loving one another if you're not believing the best in one another. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If you're not believing the best, if you're not hoping the best, if you're questioning everything that person does, you're not loving them, which means, Paul says in Galatians 5, the next thing to come is biting and devouring one another. So that's what we need to do. If we're going to stay out of conflict, those are, those are, we want you to avoid conflict. It's the wisest thing to do. Not get into it. If you're going to not get into it, what you've got to do is make sure your standard is right. Make sure you're holding people according to the standards of Scripture, especially yourself. You've got to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, not envy, strife, divisions, dissensions. And you've got to think the best of others, not the worst. But what do you do if the conflict's already happening? Because sometimes, you, you, sometimes you're not the one who starts the conflict, right? Sometimes the wife is mad at you before you're mad at the wife. Sometimes someone is upset with you. You had no idea about it. The conflict has happened. 
It's going on. Or maybe the conflict is between two other people and you don't know how to handle that. What do do I do in this situation? What do we do if conflict can't be avoided? What if it's already started? Because I think if handled biblically, conflict can always be avoided. But there's always going to be a time where it is in the annals of our life eventually not handled biblically. So what do we do? How do we handle conflict? A a great verse that is going to serve as the, the, the format of this is James chapter 1 verses 19 through 20 says know this my beloved brothers let every person be quick to hear slow to speak slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God and and that verse is going to lay out three good areas to monitor in terms of conflict so you're in conflict how do I handle it you need to control these three areas the first control your heart uh, be, uh, be slow to anger. We're not going to work through these in, in the order that James laid out. We're going to just move about them, our, our, own, our own desire here. But uh, first thing you got to do is control your heart. Make sure you are being slow to anger. And a key to doing that isn't just controlling your heart. It's controlling specifically your pride. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility is supposed to drive everything we do, every interaction. Husbands and wives, member to member, brothers and sisters, If conflict is going on, the first thing you've got to do before you dive into the conflict is to make sure that you are counting that other person as more significant to you even when you're fighting with them, even when you're in conflict with them. Because if you're not thinking that they're more significant than you, then you're not trying to stop the conflict. You're trying to win the conflict. You're not trying to kill it. You're trying to kill them. Your desire has to be that you think them more significant than you, that you're looking out for their interests, that they're just not someone who's in the way of your good, that they're just not a problem to you, a problem to get rid of, problem to be done with. If if someone has a problem with us, or if we see something that needs to be addressed in someone else, or if things just aren't right, between you and your spouse or you and a friend or you and a church member, just the first thing we need to do is make sure that pride hasn't crept into our hearts. We need to control control our hearts, pride, and not just pride, but what normally comes with it, anger. That's what James said there when he says, uh, be slow to anger. Why? Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You've got to control your heart and control your anger. Now notice, I do not say don't be angry. But don't let your anger run away with you. Why? Because if your anger runs away with you, then it is not, then your desire is not to produce God's righteousness. Because your anger... If this anger is from you, so you, let's say you allow yourself to just get angry and then we're like, I'm sure it's righteous anger, right? We're just like, I'm sure this is divine vindication, right? I goes, all the, I'm turning to the imprecatory Psalms right away. Uh, like we're always confident. I'm sure my anger is from the Lord. You, that's why you got to be slow to anger because we will always right off the bat assume that I'm right to get angry. We'll always assume that I'm not just justified to be angry, but I need to get angry. And so we've got to be slow to anger because if your anger is yours instead of God's, it's not going to produce God's righteousness. Which means it won't kill the conflict. So you have to control uh, your heart. You also have to control your tongue. Be slow to speak, as James says. Now, how do we control our tongue in terms of conflict? One, you control how you talk. 
You control your talk. So when you're talking, the things that you say in the midst of the, of the conflict, the Bible tells you how to speak even in conflict, even, even when the other person is wrong in the conflict. You have to speak a certain way. You have to control how and, and why you're talking. And the Bible says, even if the other person is wrong and you're absolutely right, you still have to be patient and gentle. We see the second Timothy chapter two, verse 24 through 26. Paul tells Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. This is why if you have someone who is a pastor who is always getting into fights on everything and about everything, that's not what a pastor is supposed to be. Pastor's not supposed to be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring even evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. If someone is, even if someone has wronged you, or if someone's accusing you of wrong, you have to be careful not to lose your temper. That even if you're correcting that other person, even if they're wrong, you still have to correct them patiently and gently. And I loved it. I love that Paul says, you've got to patiently endure. He doesn't say others, does he? Because we could make an excuse as to why there are certain people we don't need to patiently endure with, right? So when he says patiently endure with people, he doesn't mean these people. But Paul says patiently endure evil. And to, and to correct even our opponents, correct them so they're wrong. But even when they're wrong, you still correct them with gentleness. If you're, so you're in conflict, you control your tongue. How do you have to speak? You need to speak patiently and you need to speak gently. If your answer is not patient and not gentle, then your anger is not God's anger and it will not produce God's righteousness. So in your home, with your wife, you, and, and it doesn't matter if she's 100% wrong and you're 100% right. You do not get to not be patient with her. You do not get to not be gentle with her. Because if you are not patient and you are not gentle, do not pretend that what you want is God's righteousness. You don't want God's righteousness. Because if you did, you would control your anger and you'd control your tongue. And that means what you'd say would be patient and gentle. If it's not, then it doesn't matter if she's in the wrong. You are too. So deal with you and then maybe talk with her. I think Jesus mentioned that one time. Maybe dealing with the logs and then getting the specks. So you need to control, in in conflict we control how we talk, patient and gentle. But another thing the Bible warns us about is in conflict you control who you talk to. So in conflict you control how you talk, but the Bible also tells you in conflict be very careful about who you talk to. It's very hard for me not to say to whom you talk, but it seems it seemed weird. The Bible says we handle conflict. So 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 you handle conflict between you and the person who has either wronged you or who says you've wronged them. That's where it begins. If someone has wronged you, the Bible says what you do is you talk to them. Then hey, if you want to handle conflict biblically, you talk to them. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Which is again, Jesus is assuming here, the fault is something you can show. Biblically, scripturally, between you and him, what does it say? Alone. Jesus is making a point here. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. The first person you talk to is them. This is how we get so, this, you want to know why conflict gets so fired up? Because the person we're mad at is often the last person we talk to. We will talk to everyone but them. If we have problems with our husbands or our wives, we will talk to all our friends about what our husband's doing or not doing and not talk to him. If we've got a problem with our wife, we'll sit down with our buddies and say, man, I tell you what, she's hard to live with. And she's got no idea. Because you haven't told her. And certainly, so, so if someone's wronged you, you talk to them, not to everyone else. And the other thing is, don't, if they've wronged you, don't pretend that they haven't wronged you. And let that conflict boil within you without giving them the chance to fix it. 
That's the other thing we do. In our marriage, our wife will do something that we think is wrong. But instead of going, hey, I don't think you should have talked like that because the Bible said, well, that wasn't gentle and patient. This isn't how, this isn't how married couples, Christian couples, this isn't how Christ should speak to the church or the church should speak to Christ. I mean, this isn't godly. Instead of doing that, what do we do? Hmm. And we stew. We give the, the famous cold shoulder, right? Where you don't tell the other person, but you tell the other person, right? Don't do that. The Bible says if someone's wronged you, you go to them. Now you go to them and to them alone, but you do go to them. And if you don't, then you're not trying to handle conflict and you're not seeking God's righteousness. Because Jesus says, this is how you win back your brother. This is how conflict is stopped. But, but what if you've wronged someone? Okay, Ooh, that's the other side of conflict. The one we are certain, this has probably never happened to you. It has happened to me where I've actually wronged somebody. You guys have probably never had to deal with ever being in the wrong. Uh, but let's say you have wronged someone. Or you find out that someone says that you've wronged them. That someone, someone thinks you've wronged them. What do you do? Well, the Bible tells us you go to them. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 through 25. It says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in, in prison. I mean, the context here is that you know you've done something wrong. I mean, that's the context of Matthew chapter 5. You know you've done a wrong thing. You know your accuser is right. But I think the principle still applies. If you know the other person thinks, thinks they've got something against you, either way, what does it say? You still go to that person and you make it right. If you hear that someone has something against you or that someone has said something bad about you, you don't talk to everyone else about it either. So let's say someone is wrong. You, you, someone thinks you've wronged them, and instead of coming to you, they go to everybody else. You know what you don't do? You don't then go to everybody else too. This isn't a battle to see who has the most phone numbers in their cell phone, right? Remember those? Old, remember how back in the day the the telephone committees? Remember? I, I remember when I was growing up, and it was like a trope in Baptist life, like the telephone committees, like like you would people get on the phone and call, and by then, by the time everyone was at church, everyone already knew what side they were on on the issue because everyone had been called. And what often happened is these two people who were the parties had never actually talked to each other. The Bible is clear. You need to not only control how you talk, you need to control who you talk to. Uh, uh, Unless you're talking to your pastor or your spouse, there's no reason to bring anyone else into a conflict until you've talked to that other person. If you're struggling with your husband, don't complain to your friends. Talk to your husband. If you're struggling with another person, don't throw them under the bus to others. Talk to that person. In fact, the Bible warns gravely about us not doing that, that it's great danger when instead of talking to them, we talk to others. This is Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 9. This is probably the most famous one. It says, there are six things that the Lord's hate, Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. The Proverbs 26, 20 says, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there's no whisperer, quarreling ceases. So one of the, one of the ways we start a fire is, is we are like to steal from James. We're these little, we're, we're stoking fires in all these hearts of all these people that we're talking to. That's not trying to put out conflict. That's spreading conflict. Proverbs 16, 28, like we saw, a a dishonest man spreads strife. A whisper will separate close friends. We see the same thing in Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense is the one who seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So if the Bible has all of these warnings about how God feels about us spreading strife. And the danger, if you just happen to be spreading strife, then you better believe that you'd be doubly careful before you spread your conflict to anyone else other than the person you're in conflict with. So we've got to control our hearts. We've got to control our mouths, what we say and to whom we say it. And then we have to control our ears. Be quick to listen. James says, if someone has a conflict with you and their problem is with you, listen to them. 
If someone does Matthew 18 and they say they've wronged you and they've done the hard thing of coming to you, one thing you've got to make sure you do is be quick to listen. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 2 says, it is a fool that takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Don't be a fool. Don't assume I could never have done anything wrong to anyone ever. Or I, or I don't have to listen to anyone. Like, don't look, if someone comes up to you and says, I mean, I just feel like you wronged me in this, and here's why, and they bring you some scripture, and you're going, the first thing to do to them is not be like, you ain't my mama, right? Don't do that. Don't be a fool. Seek to understand. If someone says you've wronged them, at least listen. Be slow enough to at least try and understand what might have caused them to even feel that way, because you also have to think the best about them. If they come to you and it's not about you, what if it's about someone else? Well, if it's about others, then maybe listen. Maybe listen. If someone comes to you, but they've skipped those other steps, if if they haven't gone to the other person, etc., then do not listen to them. Do not listen to them. If they come and they're bringing things up to you that aren't biblical, do not listen to them. Because what they're doing is dangerous. And the Bible actually tells you that if you listen to them, you become part in their wickedness. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 4 says, An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. All you got to do is if someone, you're thinking the best, you're not going, Oh my goodness, I can't believe they're talking to them and not talking to that other person. You just tell them, Hey, Man, I love you. I'd love to talk to you about this. But until you talk to that other person, we can't talk. Because Matthew 18 says, go to them. When you say that, patiently, right, and gently, when you say that, they're either going to say, oh, yeah, I didn't, I don't know. I'd never seen that verse. I didn't know that. I was drifting off when Chris was talking about it, the hundred times he talked about it at church. You know, I, I, I didn't know that. Sorry, I'll, I'll do that. Or they'll say, I don't want to do that. Either they're going to say, sorry, yeah, I'll go do that right now. And you won't listen to them. You won't have to listen to them because they're not going to tell you. Or they'll say, I'm not going to do that. Then it's good you didn't listen to them first. It's good you didn't listen to them. They could have poisoned you. They could have, they could have spread the conflict to you, a conflict that could have separated you from close friends. This is why we've got to use the Bible as our standard and hold, control our ears. If it's about you, listen. If it's not about you, maybe listen or maybe not. If you do listen, though, let's say they have gone to the other person. They said they won't listen to me. Here's what they've done. It is a sin according to Scripture. You go, man, I can't believe they didn't listen to you, but let's, let's talk about what to do. If you do listen to them, if they've met those requirements, then always listen to both sides. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17 says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when someone has a conflict with their husband and they're mad at their husband, it is very easy for them to make their husband look absolutely horrible, right? And you're going, I can't believe they would do that. That doesn't seem like them. Uh, And then you talk to the husband and you go, well, I think she's horrible too. Uh, You know, it's, it's easy if you only get one side, if you only listen to one person, it's easy to then spend the rest of your time Let's say it is a wife who is having trouble with her husband. She comes to you, she's complaining. It's easy then for the rest of the time to always be looking side-eyed at that man. Because you never went and talked to that person. You didn't say, hey, let's us go and talk to him. So we've got to control, we've got to control our hearts. We've got to control our tongues. We've got to control our ears. And we have to control our reactions. Control your reaction in this way. If they are right about you in the conflict, if they are right and you have done wrong, then rejoice. Repent and rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord and rejoice in them. Proverbs says, or Psalm says this, Psalms 141 verse 5, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. In other words, when someone tells you you're wrong, if you don't control your reaction, it doesn't matter if they're right. You're going to go, no, no, I don't want to. Because again, we're so driven by pride. Even when someone's right, we won't want to admit they're right. 
So we have to control our reaction. Say, look, if a, if, if a righteous man strikes me, it's going to help make me godly. And that's good. That's actually oil for my head. Don't let me refuse it. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. So Psalm 141, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. This is good for you. Let him strike you. It's a kindness. Proverbs chapter 9, and thank that person. Be thankful that you've got someone in your life to help you fight against sin even when you don't want to. To fight against a sin that you didn't want to fight against and you gave into. So if they're right, rejoice, repent, and rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in them. If they're not right, though, and you've listened, you've controlled your heart, you've controlled your ears, you've controlled your tongue, and you've done nothing wrong according to the Bible, not according to their opinion, just according to Scripture, then do not feel any guilt. Proverbs 26 verse 2 says, Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. Our world thrives on perpetuating false guilt, making you feel bad about things you had no part in. And if anyone's mad at you, we live in such a victim mentality that if anyone's mad at you or feels wrong, it is surely somehow your fault. But that is not new. Because even Proverbs had to tell them, look, if the curse is causeless, don't let it sit on you. We like to say that's a modern thing that has happened. People are now trying to make you feel guilty for things you didn't do. That's always been the case. So Solomon's got to say, look, if the curse does not have a cause, then don't let it weigh on you. Don't turn the curse, don't turn the sparrow into a, into a boulder that sits on your back. There's no guilt in what you've done, so don't accept any guilt for it. It's not good for them, because if you accept guilt for it, let's say they brought some ungodly standard to you as a, as a wife or a husband or as a friend. If you accept their non-guilt or you take on their opinion, not only are you feeling burdened, but you're encouraging them to continue to burden others and themselves. So, so control your reaction. If it's right, rejoice. If it's not right, don't listen to them. Don't feel any guilt. So heart, mouth, Ears, all essential to navigate conflict and kill it. Uh, But we must never forget the foundation that Jesus mentioned uh, that none of this is possible without Christ. Conflict will kill you without Christ. Without Christ, conflict always kills. You cannot fight this battle without Christ. We go back to John 17, John 17, 21. Jesus prays that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This prayer of Christ is answered. Christ works unity in his church. God works unity in the body of Christ. And killing conflict is only possible through Christ realize your home would be in shambles right now if it weren't for him you would have no idea how to navigate the intricacies of two sinners deciding to live together forever no idea of how to handle that if god didn't change your heart and then give you guidance in his word in how to deal with it our church would constantly be at each other's throats if it weren't for christ You would be heaping guilt upon yourself. Your life would be one burdened with guilt, and rightly so, if it weren't for Christ. How do we know that Christ can kill any conflict between us? Because Christ is the one who has killed the greatest conflict we've ever been a part of. The conflict, the strain, the division between us and God. Between sinful us and a holy God. How do we know that that God can work out anything in your marriage, anything in your church, anything in your home? How do we know that Christ is enough to reconcile that? Because Christ is the great reconciler. There's a reason that Paul calls it the gospel of reconciliation. There is no gap. Christian, there is no gap between you and your husband. No chasm between you and a child. No rift between you and another church member that the cross of Christ cannot span a hundredfold. 
So where do we ultimately take our conflict? To the cross. It is the cross that kills our selfish, prideful view of ourselves and others. It is the cross that also gives us assurance that whatever conflict we're in is not the end of the story. It is the cross that we remember. It is the cross that we run to. And it is that cross and that reconciliation that we remember when we take the Lord's Supper, which is what we're going to do in just a moment. Let's pray. And then we're going to remember that cross. And as we take it, let's remember that as Paul gave it in 1 Corinthians 11, he was talking to a body that was broken about a body that was broken. And the answer is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and God, we know that we conflict rages because we live with sinners and we are sinners saved by grace. And yet, Father, our temptations war within us. Our desires, our passions are waging war against us. And sometimes when we know we should be walking by the Spirit, instead we are living by the flesh. And so when we do that, there will be strife, dissensions, divisions. And Father, I pray that each of us, that you would lead us to walk in your Spirit, in your Spirit alone. That, Father, you would help us to avoid conflict any way that we can. That we'd see how dangerous it is. And so we'd want to stay as far away from it. That it will affect us. It will affect those that we love. And that, Father, if we find ourselves in conflict, that we would run to you and to your word and how to handle it. And that, Father, as we're doing that and as it would be easy in the midst of conflict to be discouraged, to be wondering, why am I having to go through this? Why is my marriage dealing with this? Why am I dealing with this with my child? Why am I dealing with this as a church member? Why, why, why? why? It is easy, so easy to be discouraged. May we always remember. We always remember that our hope for reconciliation rests in our Christ who has bridged the gap between us and you, Father. And if he can bridge that gap, he can bridge any gap we have with one another. May we remember that. And when we go into conflict, may we go into it resting in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.